The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today, as we continue in our series, you're invited. We're going to talk again about this idea and about this word, become, and we're going to talk about how, how significant this word really is, especially for those of us who, who call ourselves and who, who want to be disciples and, and followers of Jesus. Now, the last time that we actually looked at this word, we talked about what it is that this word means for us individually as Jesus is actually making us into as he is, he is making us to become his followers, his, his disciples. And we looked at a very specific section of Scripture where we, where we see a series of words that Jesus actually wants us to be covered in. That he wants us to be covered in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And we also discovered that the reason why, I mean, the, the reason why Jesus came into our world and the reason why he actually has us here now is to make a difference. And the difference is made when people actually see a person who's been redeemed and adopted by Jesus. The the difference is made when people actually see a person who's heard Jesus call their name and who's seen who they are and who Jesus is. The, The difference is made when people actually experience an extraordinary compassion and, and, and gentleness like they've never experienced before and, and, and kindness that is completely unnatural. The difference is actually made by Jesus through you, not by making a point, but in actually learning how to love, because it is the love of Jesus that marks us as his disciples. And so the question for us today, what we're going to talk about today is, what does that look like? I mean, what does that mean for us in our lives practically? How does that get lived out for us as a group of people? I mean, what does it really mean when we say that we want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, the English word disciple actually means the very same thing that the Greek word, which is methades, does. It just simply means this. It means a learner. It means a pupil, an apprentice. It's somebody who says this, listen, I've got this decision to make. I have the situation that I'm facing in my life. So if you were me, I mean, what is it that you would do? If you had to handle this, this situation that I'm in right now, I mean, what is it that you, you would do if, I were, if you were me? I mean, how, how would you handle this? How is it that you actually approach your marriage? I mean, what is it that you do in your job when you find yourself in this situation? How, how, how do you get through this? How do you resolve this? See, a disciple is actually a person that says, you know, I'm looking to someone else to give me guidance. I'm looking to someone else to tell me, how is it that I should live my life? What is it that you think that I should do? And I want you to know that, that before you, you even tell me what you think, I want you to know the answer is yes. I mean, to whatever it is that you're going to say, the, the answer is yes. So now, so just tell me, what is it that you think I should do? Now, see, the truth is, that's awfully uncomfortable for every single one of us, isn't it? And yet, when we look into the New Testament, and we actually ask ourselves the question, you know, what were these people in the early church, what were they really about? How did they approach all the different situations and circumstances that they found themselves in in life in this world? The truth is, that's the pattern that we see lived out over and over and over again. 
And then we also looked at this verse from John chapter 13, where, where Jesus actually says this. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, you're my learners, you're, you're my apprentices, you're my followers, if you love one another. In other words, Jesus actually wants other people to say they must be Jesus' followers not simply because of, uh, of what it is that they believe. That They must be followers of Jesus not simply because of where they happen to go on a Sunday morning. He said these other people in the world, they're going to actually know that you belong to me by how it is that you love one another. And then later on in that same conversation, a little bit earlier, he actually said, how? He told us, what does that look like? What it is that it means to love one another? Jesus, I want you to actually love one another in the very same way that I've loved you. And see, the truth is, that's pretty much the problem, isn't it? Because, I mean, all of us, we think that we know something about love. And we do. I mean, all of us, to some extent or another, every single one of us, we've experienced love in in, in some way, haven't we? I mean, we, we have. And yet the problem is, Jesus actually said that other people are going to know that we are his disciples, we are his followers by the way that we love. And he said, the way that you are to love is the very same way that I have loved you. And here's the problem. See, when you actually open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you actually read and you look at how it is that Jesus loved other people. I mean, the the truth is, in some ways, that kind of love is almost more terrifying than, than Jesus' call to follow him in the first place, isn't it? Because it's not always clear. It doesn't follow a pattern, does it? We can't just take a list to it and and mark things off. It's not always simple. It doesn't necessarily look the same in every circumstance. See, when you look at the way that Jesus actually loved other people, what you find is that there's a lot of tension in that. And to some extent or another, every single one of us, we find ourselves in that tension at some point in our lives, and it makes every single one of us uncomfortable. In fact, this is one of those things that I would argue that is is much easier for us to actually get wrong as as individuals, but especially for us as a church. This is the kind of thing that's much easier to get wrong than it is to get right. Because when you actually open up the New Testament and you read the stories about how it is that Jesus loved, you actually ask the question, how did Jesus love other people? Here's what you discover. It's messy. It's not the same for every single person that he meets. It doesn't always follow a prescribed pattern. Oftentimes it's very confusing. And the truth is there's tension there and there is always tension every time you open up the scriptures and you actually take seriously the words that Jesus says to us. Because at times when we see Jesus, at times he seems to be really, really forgiving, doesn't he? And then other times he holds everybody accountable for every little thing. There's times where we actually hear Jesus' words and they sound so harsh. And yet there's other times where he is incredibly kind. There's times where it feels like Jesus is actually going out of his way to point out sin. And then there's other times where it just looks like he is completely ignoring sin altogether. 
And see, what we find as we ask the question, how is it that Jesus loved, the truth is there's tension around the way that Jesus actually loved other people. And if we try to resolve that tension, we always lose. We end up giving up something that is very, very important. And yet the truth is that is the temptation that every single one of us that we face in our lives as people who who want to follow and who want to become more and more like Jesus. Now, it's John. Actually, the very same John who tells us in chapter 13 how it is that Jesus wants us to love, it's that same John who actually gives to us an understanding of something in his gospel that he wants us to see to to help us understand this tension that, that all of us experience. And once the apostles, once they realized that Jesus wasn't coming back, you know, as quickly as they expected him to come back, because Jesus just told them, he said, listen, I'm coming back. And so they're thinking, like, Thursday. You know, Thursday. I'm sure, Friday for sure. I mean, there's no way he's going to wait till the weekend. I'm sure Jesus will be back, you know, long before the weekend. But, but once the apostles actually realized that Jesus wasn't coming back when they thought he was, when, when they understood that God was not working on their time schedule, they knew they had to write down all these things that they heard Jesus say and all these things they saw Jesus do, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also Peter and Paul, Jude, all, all of them. They, they all began to write James. And they recorded all of these events for us. Take out your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 1. Now, it's in the very first chapter of John's gospel that he he tries to set the stage for us first to understand uh, the significance of the conflict that actually existed between Jesus and, and the very people that he had come into this world to love. And so in the opening verses of his chapter, he, he paints this picture for us. And he says, imagine if you were the creator of the world and you made not only the world but you made everyone in the world and you made them all in your own image and yet they did not even recognize you as being the creator. See, that's the, that's the tension. That, that's the conflict that John wants us to understand that, that actually exists between Jesus and the people that he had come into the, this world to love. And then at the end of verse 14, John gives to us these two words. He gives to us these two words that actually help us to capture and understand and and describe this, this tension that every single one of us as individuals will face. Every single one of us who actually want to become more and more like Jesus, all of us will face this at some point. And this is a tension also that especially for us as a church, as a church that actually wants to reach people who are lost, as a church that actually wants to see more and more people understand that they belong to their Heavenly Father, this is a tension that we will always have to live with and struggle with. This is what John says to us in verse 14. He says, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. Literally, he says, Jesus came and camped out. Jesus came and he moved in, John says. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Filled to the brim, John says, with both grace and truth. And that's where we find this tension, right? Because every single one of us, we all know what grace is. 
And we all know what truth is. See, truth says you're accountable, but grace says you're forgiven. Right? Grace says you're fine. Truth says you actually need to fix this. Truth says you're broken. Grace says I love you just the way that you are. Truth says you're accountable. Truth says you've got to work on this. Truth says you didn't meet my expectation. Grace says I will never, ever stop loving you. And that's the tension we experience, isn't it? Because, see, the truth is, as individuals, every single one of us, we lean more towards one of these than the other, don't we? See, I I always want to try to push Jesus in in one direction or the other. I I always want to remind Jesus about every verse that talks about truth every time I'm talking to him about somebody else. But when the issue is me, see, that's when I'm reminding Jesus about all those verses that talk about grace. Then in verse 16, John says this to us. He says, it's from the fullness of his grace that we, all of us, We've all received one blessing after another. For the law, he says, so this is not just the Ten Commandments, but all the law that was given through Moses. The law that says, here's what God expects of you, and here's what you need to do when you do not live up to God's expectation. All the law that says, you're wrong. You're wrong. The law that says you're all wrong, and you are really, really wrong. That law, John says, all of that was given through Moses. And then there's this huge distinction. Grace and truth, he says, came. Now here's what I want you to notice. John does not use the word given just like he did just just a couple of words earlier in that same sentence, does he? He intentionally reaches and uses a a different word. In the Greek, it's the word ginomi. It literally means came into existence. Grace and truth came into existence through Jesus Christ, he says. Not the balance between. That's the temptation. Not grace on some days and truth on others. Not the balance between, but the embodiment of. And see, this, this is exactly what it is that made Jesus so messy. This is what made him so unpredictable. This has left uh, the people who were watching Jesus from the outside, this is what constantly made them so confused when they would see Jesus. Because every single one of us, we all want to push Jesus more one way than the other, but John tells us that Jesus was absolutely full of both grace and truth, that he brought all of that into every situation that he found himself in. And he brought all of both of those things into every single encounter that he had with another person. That Jesus was grace and truth in a body. Now, when we actually kind of learn to read through the Gospels in this lens, with this lens, I mean, we see this all over the place, don't we? 
I mean, this is what we actually heard from, from Pastor RJ just a couple of weeks ago when he shared with us the, the story of the Samaritan woman. I mean, Jesus is there at this well, and he's speaking to, to this Samaritan woman, which no one else would dare do, and we clearly see grace there. And yet, just a few moments after that, after Jesus is already offered to give to her a gift of living water after he's already given, offered a gift to her that nobody else can give to her. A, a gift that will provide meaning and purpose in her life that will satisfy her deepest longings. Jesus actually reaches in to the most shame-filled and painful part of her past and says, go and bring your husband here. And when she tries to duck the question, and take the easy way out by simply saying to Jesus, you know, I'm not married. I mean, Jesus actually looks at her and says, you're right, you're not married. You've been married five times, and the, the, the guy that you're living with now, he's not even your, you're not even married to him. I mean, it's like, seriously, Jesus, who does that? Do you not have any people skills, Jesus? Do you don't realize you don't talk to people that way? I mean, Jesus, really, what she does with her life, that's, that's her business, isn't it? And then just a couple minutes later, I mean, we actually see Jesus revealing something to this Samaritan woman that we don't find him saying this plainly and this clearly to anyone else in all of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus goes and finds an outcast among outcasts. He goes and finds th this Samaritan woman, and he looks at her eye to eye, and he actually says to her, I am the Messiah. Grace and truth. They came into her life, didn't they? Then there's Matthew. I mean, everybody hated Matthew. I mean, people don't like tax collectors now. Back then, they really hated tax collectors, right? They're all traitors. I mean, all through the Gospels, when you read what you find out, there's two categories of, of people who are despised. There's all the sinners, and then there are the tax collectors. They're so hated that they have their own category. And so one day, Jesus, he actually walks up to Matthew while he's collecting taxes, and he says, Matthew, you're invited. Matthew, you're in. Matthew, I actually want you to, to join me. To which Jesus' other disciples are sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, you know, wait a minute, Jesus, aren't you worried that people are going to think that we actually approve of tax collecting if you let a tax collector be a part of our group? Jesus, doesn't it concern you at all that people are going to think that we approve of his behavior if you let him in with us? To which Jesus says, you don't even know the half of it. Because tonight, we're all going to his house. And he's going to invite over all of his tax-collecting friends. Jesus, doesn't it bother you that if other people actually see us with these people, they're going to think that we approve of what it is that they're doing? And Jesus says, what do you think I came here for? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I didn't come here to guard my own reputation. I, I came here to save those who were lost. And once again, we see grace and truth in Matthew's life. 
Jesus actually lives this out right to his very own crucifixion, doesn't he? I mean, just a couple of weeks from now, we're going to begin the season of Lent. And right after that, the celebration of Easter. And we actually see this in in Jesus' own crucifixion. I mean, we know that when Jesus was executed, he wasn't the the only person to be crucified on that day, was he? I mean, we know there were two other men that were crucified with him as well. Matthew and Mark, they actually call these men criminals, robbers. Luke calls them criminals. But see, the Romans, they didn't crucify common thieves. I mean, they only crucified the worst of the worst. So, so these were men that, that could not be trusted to, to serve as slaves in a mine someplace. These were men who couldn't be trusted to row a, a, a Roman ship into battle. And it's in the midst of Jesus being crucified, while he's being crucified, a conversation breaks out between these two men, and one of them says that we are actually getting what it is that we deserve. And when you read the story, you'd almost expect Jesus to kind of chime in and say, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. But he doesn't. He remains silent, as if to say, yeah, no argument for me. But then when Jesus does speak, he actually says to him, today, when you breathe your last breath today, when when I breathe my last breath, I'm going to bring you with me to paradise. And yet just before that happens, this rich young guy, he actually comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus and says, I want to have eternal life. And Jesus says to him, okay, great, go and sell everything you have and spend the rest of your life following me. I mean, Jesus, you're going to let the the worst of the worst, you're going to let him in with one minute left on the clock, and yet this rich young guy, you're going to tell him he's got to sell all of his stuff and spend his life following you? How is that fair, Jesus? See, there's tension there, isn't there? And yet the truth is, both grace and truth, they came into both of those men's lives, didn't it? Then perhaps the most famous story of all. Once again, it's John who records the story for us. And and it's such a strange story because it's such an obvious setup. I mean, Jesus is actually in the temple, and and he's, he's got a group of people around him, and he's actually teaching these people. And this other group of rabbis, they walk up to Jesus, and they bring with them a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they kind of fling her at Jesus. And they remind Jesus, you know, hey, according to the law, you know, according to the law that was given through Moses, the law says this woman needs to die. And Jesus says, you're right. I agree. She does. Go ahead and stone her. But let the person who doesn't have any sin, let them be the first one. The person that's here, that's never committed adultery with another woman in their heart, they they can be the first ones. The person that's here, that's never lusted after someone else, let them start. And then when the law and all of its power, all of its vengeance, when that breaks down literally in front of their own eyes, they just all walk off one by one. 
until the only one who is left is the one with no sin. And then Jesus looks at her and says, even though I can condemn you because I have no sin and you are a sinner, even though I can condemn you, I won't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin, grace, and truth came into her life. Has grace and truth come into your life? Have grace and truth, have they come into your life? See, this is what we see all throughout the Gospels, isn't it? And this is what we see Jesus doing over and over again. This is how we actually see Jesus loving people as the embodiment of both grace and truth. So what does this mean for us as his disciples? For us as his disciples, see, if we want to actually understand what it means when Jesus says love one another, then we actually have to look and watch how it is that Jesus loved. Right? If we want to understand, if we want to know what Jesus meant when Jesus said, I want you to love one another, then we actually have to watch how Jesus loved. Do you know how Jesus loved? He called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. And after he paid for it, he declared, and I do not condemn you. And then he says to all of us, now that I've called sin, sin, now that I've paid for that sin, I refuse to condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And if you don't, I love you. And if you can't, I love you. And if the brokenness and the woundedness and the complexity of your own sin has left you in this place where you're not ever sure, you're not sure that you'll ever be able to escape from the grasp of your own sin, Jesus says to you, I love you. If someone else has actually sinned against you and that has sent you into a downward spiral that you're not sure that you will ever recover from, Jesus says to you, I love you. No one will ever love you more than I do. And nothing could make, you ever lo- could make me ever love you any less. See, the truth is there is tension there for all of us, isn't there? And see, the truth is, there's a tension there. If we try to resolve, if we try to get rid of that tension, the truth is we end up losing something that is incredibly important. Do you understand why we can never let go of truth, even when it's incredibly unpopular? 
even when it gets really, really complicated? See, the, the issue is this. Sin always, sin always has a hook. Sin always has a, has a hook, and God does not want sin to get its hooks into you. And that's why we have to always say, here's what's true, here's what Scripture says. Here's what Scripture says about how we handle our relationships. Here's what Scripture says about how we handle our money. Here's what Scripture says about how we handle our ethics and our sexuality, our relationships, our, our marriages. Here's what Scripture says about how it is that we handle our, our money and our time and our families. Because sin has a hook. And God does not want, and I do not want sin to get its hooks into you. And the reason why we can't ever let go of grace is because to some extent or another, sin has already gotten every single one of us, hasn't it? And see, grace is our only way back. Grace is our only way home. Grace is the only way that any of us will ever know that we can actually belong. Grace is the only way that we'll ever be connected or reconnected to our heavenly Father. And so the truth is, see, the truth is we need truth. And we need grace. And because of that, we need Jesus who is the embodiment of both grace and truth. And if the church is his body, I mean, if Jesus is the embodiment of both grace and truth, and if the church really is his body, meaning we are his hands and we are his feet, then that also means that we, that you and that me, we are the best, we are the closest representation of Jesus that anyone will ever see. Now that is an incredibly humbling thought. But if you were actually here with us last weekend and you saw that video with Brandy and Mo, then you actually saw that. You saw that, didn't you? So how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Two questions that if I could get every single one of you to ask, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how long you've been following Jesus. I don't care how long you've been a part of the church, how long you've been here, how new you are, how long, time, how long you've been around. Two questions if every single one of us would ask in all of our areas of life. What would truth have me say? What would grace have me do? In my marriage... In my home, what would truth have me say? What would grace have me do? With my kids, with my parents, what would truth have me say? What would grace have me do? In my job, in my neighborhood, in my community, what would truth have me say? What would grace have me do? See, if we want to know, if we want to understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said to love one another, then we have to watch how Jesus loved. And it isn't easy. And it is messy. And it will never, ever, ever 
be simple. It will never be a formula. But there is a tension there that we we cannot let go of. There is a tension there that as a church we dare not ever try and resolve because when we do, we lose out on exactly what it is that we and our world so desperately need. Which is the truth and the grace that only comes through Jesus Christ who is our Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you know that this is the kind of a, a, a message. It's, it's one of those things that's just so much easier to think about and to talk about than it is to actually go and do. And yet the truth is, for some of us that are right here today, in this moment, this is the situation that we find ourselves in. This is the struggle. This is the tension that we're facing with some way that we really, really, truly love. This is the tension that we face with someone that we care about. And so, Father, for every single person in that situation, in this moment, I specifically pray that you would help them, that you would help us, that you'd help me to see how to love the way that Jesus loved. I pray that you'd help us to know what truth it is that you'd have me say and what grace it is that you would have me do. Jesus, it's your truth, it's your grace that has challenged and changed every single one of us. And we do. We want to be a church. We want to be a people where you continue to work in and through us. And so, Jesus, we do ask that you give to us the opportunities and the courage to go along with them to help people know that they do belong, that they can be challenged to believe, and where you make us to become more and more like you every single day. all this we humbly pray and ask in your name and by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit.